Welcome to Paul Conway, who is the Chief Economist for the Reserve Bank and has just finished writing the monetary policy statement, along with a whole group of uh, other economists at the Reserve Bank uh, for February. It's the first time we've had a chance to hear from the Reserve Bank for a few months, and there's been a lot happen in the, in the meantime. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Bernard. Uh, could you tell us how the Reserve Bank has approached, and I know it only just happened, so that's hard, how it approached the impact of Cyclone Gabriel as something to look through? Yeah, well, this, it's true that we were writing this document while the rain was pouring out of, out of the sky up on the um, East Cape and, and, and beyond. So, so it's all, all very fresh. Our thinking is all very fresh. Uh, and essentially the framework that we built to, to think about it was that uh, in the short term there's going to be price spikes for goods and services that have been destroyed by the cyclone. So sort of a demand shock. Uh, if you like, so used cars, I guess, are the obvious example, appliances, furniture and furnishings uh, and the like. So things that have been destroyed that people will want to replace in a hurry. So that's the, that's the demand shock. Uh, and on the supply side, um, you know, a lot of crops have been wiped out. So, you know, there's going to be a hit to exports there. Uh, and, you know, that's a negative supply shock. Um, so the, this is like fruit and veg prices will no doubt experience a price spike uh, because of that as well. So that's sort of near-term price spikes. And then in the medium term, um, you know, the rebuild is going to require resources. It's going to require capital and labour um, to flow uh, into cyclone-affected areas. And that's against the backdrop of an economy um, that is capacity-constrained uh, at the moment. So there's a challenge there as well. So it's early, but what impact do you think this might actually have on inflation? Uh, in, in our projections, we added uh, um, 0.3 percentage points to inflation in, in the first quarter and second quarter of this year uh, to account for those price spikes, which are hopefully temporary. Um, and then we added in about 1% of GDP, like increased in the, in the form of um, residential investment. Uh, and investment more generally. And as we learn more, that'll be split between the, the, the public sector response uh, and the private sector response. How does the Reserve Bank see these um, changes in inflation between short-term, I suppose you could call them shocks, mm. which um, you can't really expect or blame anyone for, so you look through them, and something that's small, sticky, medium-term that you have to address? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, we... Uh, according to our, our remit, which is consistent with you know, monetary policy, you know, academic uh, literature going back decades, uh, we tend to look through, so ignore those temporary price spikes. So as you say, it's, you know, we're short of cars. Uh, the price of cars, used cars, is going to uh, blip up as a result of that. There's nothing monetary policy can do uh, about that because it's you know, related, it's caused by this you know, awful, this disaster, this natural disaster. So we look through that. Uh, what we are focused on and what we can affect by shifting interest rates in the economy is those more medium term, uh, we call them you know, core uh, inflationary pressures. That's uh, what we focus on. There, there is a bit of a caveat there is that um, depending on how people react 
um, to those short-term price spikes, you know, in this case because of the cyclone, um, they can stop being a short-term price spike and become uh, sort of embedded in that more medium-term core inflation. So we're always talking about inflation expectations, you know, people expect inflation to be high going forward and if that expectation is driven by these short-run dynamics coming out of the cyclone in this case, then, then that's exactly uh, what we will lean against. So what's your feeling about uh, that sort of mind game, if you like, of inflation uh, here in Aotearoa? Mm. Have people, you know, ingested the higher inflation rates of the last couple of years and are now expecting more or what? Well, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, there's temporary price spikes that we sort of have to look through. It's been one uh, supply shock after another. So, yeah, and, you know, I mean, inflation here is obviously far too high, um, but it could, it could be worse. I think in the current context of the cyclone, it's really important uh, that workers and that businesses don't use those temporary price spikes as an opportunity to just lift their you know, wages uh, or the prices they charge for their goods for, for workers and businesses uh, respectively. Because if they do that, if those short-term price spikes do get embedded, you know, all that's going to mean is um, stickier core inflation and higher interest rates down the track. It's sort of, you know, a, a terrible thing has happened and we're all worse off uh, as a society here in Aotearoa. So, you know, how do we take that hit? Where, where does that sort of, that burden of adjustment uh, sort of reside? And people, you know, trying to bump up their real wages or their real profits um, for no, you know, be, that's not related to productivity or innovation or all those kind of drivers of long-run prosperity, uh, then that's when we do get into that persistent inflation situation and when you do get, a, a, you know, us, the central bank, responding with higher interest rates to kind of stamp it out. Uh, was there ever a suggestion the Reserve Bank could hold off or pause its interest rate moves because of the shock of Gabriel? Um, there were suggestions in the media, yeah, for sure. Um, we didn't seriously entertain that around the Monetary Policy Committee uh, table. And, you know, here here it's, it's what can we achieve with monetary policy. You know, we only have one New Zealand dollar, you know, we talk about having a very blunt instrument in terms of interest rates and it, you know, we set those based on the economy overall. You know, we can't sort of lower mortgages for people in Hastings, uh, for example. Like monetary policy doesn't have that precision, it's that blunt tool uh, nature of it. So the best contribution that we can make is to you know, get inflation uh, back down into its box and that sort of will help with that resource uh, reallocation process to, 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 to be part of the rebuild. You know, whereas fiscal policy and um, you know, private the banks and insurance companies are much better um, able to focus exactly in on, on the problem. Um, and the government is obviously going to spend um, billions over the next few years mm. on repairing and maybe rebuilding and maybe even building in some extra climate adaptation. How does the Reserve Bank see that um, change in uh, fiscal spending outlook, mm. particularly if it's um, a, you know, a net increase? So no other changes yep. in taxes or spending plans, but it's actually an increase yep. in the government's overall spending over the next few years. Yeah, well, it, it does come down to um, 
the, like, first of all, what's the size of the devastation? What's the size of the event? Uh, how, what's the size of the fiscal response, the government response to it? And as you say, you know, how is that funded is, is quite a fundamental part of this conversation, just given that our economy you know, is seriously capacity constrained uh, at the moment. So a very different scenario to say you know, the Canterbury, the Christchurch earthquakes, uh, when the bank did uh, lower interest rates uh, immediately. And when, when I say, you know, the challenge is how can we divert resources out of areas that haven't been affected by the cyclone into those areas that have, and how can we do that without generating inflationary pressures uh, in the economy? So if, for example, the government response is funded by debt uh, and is sufficiently large, uh, then that would amount to expansionary fiscal policy. Um, which you know would be pushing against monetary policy at the moment, which is contractionary. Um, whereas if that uh, that response, that rebuild, is um, funded in a way that takes demand out of the rest of the economy, uh, then that that sort of that that rebalancing of resources uh, can happen in a in a in a less sort of constrained environment, and then it'll be less inflationary. So we've had all of this coverage of the awful events, Te Tairawhiti, Northland, Auckland from three or four weeks ago, Hawke's Bay, absolutely awful. And mm. it feels like the entire country has just had this massive shock. But actually, Northland, Te Tairawhiti, Hawke's Bay are relatively small parts of the economy. They're more important from an export point of view, mm. but in terms of total GDP, they're not so large. Also, particularly in Te Tarawhiti, uh, you've got relatively high or higher unemployment. And, uh, you know, we've got a lot of uh, construction and building activity, which is sort of petering out. They've gone through their order books and looking over the next year or two, looks a bit empty. Mm -hmm. And some of that might move to Hawke's Bay Te Tarawhiti. So was there, is there any uh, prospect, do you think, that resources that are spare could be moved mm -hmm. elsewhere in the economy and not have an inflationary impact. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think we can do this in a way that uh, that doesn't generate inflation. We we are um, forecasting a significant slowdown in residential investment, like in general, in the economy in aggregate. Um, and it's you know there's a lot of uncertainty around that at the moment, like even more than normal given recent events, and we're still sort of getting our heads around the the scale uh, of the devastation. But that slowdown, you know, it could prove to be timely in that, as you say, it does free up resources to, to move to where they uh, have the most value. And can I just add, uh, Bernard, that our, you know, our hearts go out to people that have been directly uh, affected by these uh, terrible uh, events. I think you're right, you know, the whole country is really feeling it uh, at the moment. Now, just stepping back a bit um, uh, and looking at what's happening with inflation overall and what's happening with wages overall. Firstly, on the inflation front, um, there's two types of inflation we think of, the non-tradable inflation mm. and tradable inflation. So the tradable inflation is international prices, uh, goods and services that compete directly with the rest of the world where the prices really are set internationally, they're not set here. Mm. And then there's the non-tradable stuff. So businesses, products, services that are produced here, consumed here completely, prices are set here, wages are set here, and they're called non-tradable. And that's the, 
the stuff you really want to focus on if you're trying to stop inflation getting out of control in your own economy, mm. the non-tradable. And I always thought there wasn't much of a connection between the rest of the world and non-tradable inflation, and uh, a bit like a species barrier. But um, I always look at the special topics in the monetary Good. policy statement, <laughs> and there's a cracking chart showing that the relationship between inflation in the rest of the world and non-tradable inflation here has actually changed mm. quite a bit in the last 20 years in a way that I hadn't noticed. Can you tell us what's going on there? Yep, sure. So first of all, you know, we do uh, like non-tradable, like inflation that is kind of homegrown here in New Zealand. You know, that's what we can affect with domestic monetary policy. You know, we can't affect uh, inflation or, or deflation that's pressures coming over the border from, you know, things like the price of oil or global technology shocks or globalisation, all that sort of stuff. We just sort of have to take that uh, as a given. But a as you say, you know, we've done some work on the sort of correlation or the links between global inflation and non-tradable inflation in New Zealand. And you do find that that relationship or that, you know, the global inflationary environment is more correlated with um, our non-tradable environment here. And of course, you know, correlation is not causation. Uh, and all of that sort of stuff. But it does make you think, you know, why has that correlation increased? Um, and there's a few um, potential explanations that we kick around in the, in the statement. Um, it could reflect you know, a common shock if the New Zealand economy and the global economy are both all being influenced by the same thing, uh, COVID, I guess, being a, a, an obvious example. Uh, then it makes sense that those two types of inflation are going to sort of move together. Uh, also a common response. Uh, I think it's true that central banks have been quite um, correlated in, in their responses to COVID. So we were all cutting interest rates, uh, you know, uh, back, in, back in the day uh, when, the shock, when the pandemic was sort of cresting. Uh, and we've all been increasing interest rates more recently. So again, that policy response can lead to a correlation uh, across those two types of, between global inflation and non-tradable inflation. Um, and it could also just reflect the fact you know, that the world is more integrated these days. So even if you are producing something that's you know, really non-tradable, haircuts is a good example, you can't import a haircut uh, or export it. But if, you know, if you're using, I don't know, fuel, oil or whatever, to, to sort of get around or, you know, if there's a common factor input into those businesses that's sort of correlated, then, you know, they are going to move together. And, and the last uh, possible reason for that increase in correlation is um, the data, the quality of the data. Um, so we measure what's tradable or non-tradable um, depending on the share of exports or imports um, for that good relative to the total uh, size of our consumption of that good. Um, and those weights haven't been re-estimated since 2003, uh, I believe. Um, so, you know, data is an issue in New Zealand. You can never, you know, you're, the, the, the sort of strength of your conclusion depends on the quality of your data. So it's something that we're always very mindful. Are there some parts of the economy that are becoming more international? Because it's, it's never a case of international or not international. You've got all sorts yeah. of things. People, you know, are bouncing back and forth between countries working. Sometimes you can outsource some work to the internet uh, where previously you couldn't. Mm. You could move some workers into call centres somewhere else or 
for example, in airlines, um, the A320s that Air New Zealand and Jetstar use are in theory domestic service providers, um, but they can just as easily be flown to Australia and used yeah. there. And have actually we've seen that. So um, is, is that part of the reason that our, the domestic parts of our economy have become sort of more integrated or yep. connected? Yeah, it's, it's kind of the globalisation. You know, globalisation has been uh, increasing. It's been a really powerful force uh, over recent decades. And, and a lot of that has been enabled by technology. So we can trade services globally, you know, online. We used to kind of think of services as if you, if you couldn't put it on a boat and send it something else, somewhere else, then it was by, you know, sort of, it was non-tradable. Um, but, you know, now we can sort of build digital assets and trade them down fiber optic cables, you know, in the blink of an eye. Um, so that has opened up different parts of our economy to you know, international dynamics, be it international competition or, or opportunity for many New Zealand firms. Does that mean then that um, the Reserve Bank has a, a bit less runway or traction to work with to get to the economy? Because there's assumption that, you know, we can't do anything about the stuff overseas. And that's often part of the political debate. Someone will say, well, we've got inflation, you know, look, it's happening overseas. Mm, mm. We couldn't do anything about it here. Mm. So that's why there's always this focus on the non-tradable stuff. Mm. But if the non-tradable stuff is also following what's happening overseas, does that mean that the Reserve Bank have only a small chunk of the economy in which to where the rubber can hit the road. Um, yeah, I wouldn't describe it as a small part of the economy. It might be a declining part of the economy, but it's still substantial. You know, monetary policy still uh, has purchase uh, in New Zealand, and you know, I think I think it's you know we're still focused on you know even even if we get a, a tradable inflation shock coming over the border. Um, we're still all about how is that sort of feeding into expectations and those second round effects, how generalised is it getting in the economy. So it's not, it's not as if we're just ambivalent to inflation coming over the border. We can and, and we do uh, respond to those second round effects. We just sort of take it as you know, what we call an exogenous shock. It's not something that we can do about the shock, but we can definitely influence how it plays out. Uh, in the economy. You know, based on our data, and I've sort of already made caveats around that, um, you know, in terms of our recent inflation over 2022, about, about half of it was generated offshore and about half of it uh, was sort of homegrown, uh, domestically non-tradables uh, inflation. And a big part of the homegrown stuff is wages, and there's been a lot of focus on so-called wage price spirals. Mm. And that phrase, wage price spiral, um, it's a bit of an archaic one for a whole bunch of uh, people uh, up and down the motu who uh, have been used to being working in the last 20 or 30 years where they haven't maybe felt a lot of market power and uh, they just take what they get in terms of pay increases. Mm. Um, and they may be wondering, what is this wage price spiral I hear about? Um, and it's worth, I think, giving some context and a bit of history here that the last time we had inflation up near here for any length of time, the 70s, the 80s, into the very early 1990s, the New Zealand economy was quite a bit different in that we had a bigger share of the workforce in unions. We didn't have the Employment Contracts Act. Uh, often when there was an increase in inflation, the workers would get together in a pretty big way and demand a big pay increase. And you might have uh, a big agreement done between um, a big union and a big government. 
and uh, bang, you'd get a big pay increase that comes went through. And that was one of the concerns about inflation is that the speed and the size of the you know, feedback loop between wages and prices was often quite big. Mm. But since then, we've had the Employment Contracts Act, we'd have globalization of labor forces, we've had a shift from a lot of people working in factories and big workplaces with unions to a lot of people work, working in cafes and shops where it may not be unionized. Um, and so I, I wonder when you look at the data today, how much of a factor is the wage price spiral, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And you've looked at some of the, the data on things like how fast pay is increasing, whether there's a connection between those who are jumping from jobs and pay increases. Um, what, what have you found? Yeah, I, 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 like I think this is a really interesting uh, topic, and and I agree completely that the labour market now is very different to what it was, you know, back in the day. The last time we had uh, elevated or inflation higher than it is currently, um, and, you know, as you say, unionisation isn't as strong uh, as it was. So, you know, I, I think we do have a pretty competitive labour market uh, in this country, but I, I also, you know, you can't, you can't sort of take it for granted that we're not going to see these kind of wage price dynamics. Um, currently, real wage growth is positive. So real wage uh, increases when you take into, the, into account the fact that people can change jobs, uh, get promoted or work longer hours. You know, it's, 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 ahead, it's tracking ahead of inflation. Um, you know, and that could be underpinned by productivity improvements. It could be underpinned by people moving to jobs with their skills are more suited and therefore they're creating more value per hour of work which is you know that's that would be great that would be a legitimate reason for a pay rise but it could uh, reflect um, this sort of just trying to keep up with inflation um, so you know we're not it's it's you know even though the labor market has become more competitive I don't think you can take your eye off the potential for those dynamics um, to evolve and in fact there's a graph in the NPS showing that people um, or some people exactly are, are getting pay increases more frequently uh, than they used to be. So again, you know, just a sign that we, we can't take, take this for granted, that there is going to be no dynamic there. But I think, you know, the, like profits is the other uh, aspect, you know, the return to the owners of capital. Uh, if profits are just increasing off the back of increasing costs, um, you know, it's quite possible that you get the same dynamic in that part of the economy and we know a lot less about that potential dynamic than we do about about sort of wage uh, cost dynamics so i think that's an interesting area to explore as well and i, I would i would posit that our product markets in new zealand are less competitive than our labor market um, so you know therefore <laughs> there's there's definitely a possibility of, of that sort of thing happening because we have some pretty good and deep stats in several surveys looking at wages and obviously prices, but maybe not quite the depth of data or frequency around profits. Mm. Now you have to dig a bit harder. You have to look into the micro data uh, to, to, get, uh, to get that. The, the, the data on profits is improving and we definitely will be looking at it, um, but you sort of have to do it with micro data. Um, the, other, the other aspect of it is good measures of competition uh, in our markets, which is the kind of thing that the Commerce Commission uh, is is all over. You know, I'm really supportive of the Commerce Commission having the power to do market studies, uh, for example, these days. I think that's a really, you know, good uh, evolution in our regulatory uh, framework in New Zealand. Paul Conway, the Chief Economist at the Reserve Bank. Paul, thank you very much for taking us through the 
thickets and um, divots of the economy. Pleasure, Bernard, as always. Nice to see you.